Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to continue um, spending time in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, and I want to begin reading from 9 verse Verse 9 through 15, let's ask the Lord's blessing now upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we do settle our hearts to come before you now to hear your voice and your word, Lord, inwardly. It's not the voice of men that does us good, but your voice. So, Lord, we ask that you would now take this exercise, this means of grace, Lord, this doctrine of justification and come and, Lord, make us to understand it. Help us, O Lord. Give us the light of our minds to grasp it, Lord, that we might cling to it, hold to it, that we wouldn't be tricked or any way betrayed in, Lord, compromising it. Lord, this doctrine is imperative to every believer So come now, O Lord, and Lord, teach us, teach us, O Lord, your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 9. Hear now the word of the living God. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning is just the part two of that verse 14, where Jesus says that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. It's imperative, I think important, that we open up this idea of justification and wrap our minds around it. And I think it would, we could understand the need for this, that is why we are spending some time here. I mean, the parable itself lends itself to this doctrine. It lends itself for us to spend time here and for us to clear up any um, misunderstanding that we may have of justification. If there's not a misunderstanding, then certainly just confirming that which we already believe and know to be God's word. And we can all say a hearty amen to that. But this is no small doctrine. The doctrine of justification is no light matter. It's imperative. It's it's primary. I started just surveying all of the uh, giants of the faith, if you will, looking at quotes 
from them on justification. And of course, this room couldn't contain all of those quotes. They were all very much convinced and convicted that the church stands upon the doctrine of justification. And that if that truth is ever compromised in any way, even in ignorance, the church would suffer for it. Again, how a person is justified before God is a valid, valid question, isn't it? And Jesus makes this statement about the publican. And of course, it would have astounded his listeners. They would have been shocked to hear such a thing because they had been uh, basically, they had learned through the uh, fraternity of the Pharisees that works was very much a part of their salvation. Wrongly so, but nevertheless, they were inundated that the doctrine of justification rested upon their good works. And of course, many, of course, in being deceived, many would find themselves perishing because they would never repent of it or overcome that misunderstanding. The publican here is our example of what it is to be translated from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge of God, acceptance, what it is to have that right relationship with him, what it is to have that peace with him, what it is to be reconciled with him. And so this is significant. And it's significant for not just us, but our posterity, it's significant not just for this church in coming Georgia. It is significant in every church in this country and in this world if they claim to be a Christian church. There's a volume of books that I am reading at this point, and it was a, a, a work that was done before the Westminster Assembly, and it's obvious that the uh, divines used these men in order to help cultivate some of their own uh, confession in the Westminster Confession, that they used this work. That is, that they didn't originate it. It's not like the Westminster divines showed up and created a whole new system. They were implementing all of the good and sound doctrine that had already been established. And these books are becoming more readily available to us and are being uh, translated into English and made available uh, to the public. And these are great, this is a great thing. In fact, that volume of book, that volume, those two volumes, basically say this about justification. It identifies justification as the foremost locus in theology. And for us, the most salutary meaning there is no other doctrine that would demand your meditation and interest and time than justification. And so that alone gives us at least, if you will, a reason to spend some time here, doesn't it? 
to recognize that we could spend some time and, and identify the various parts and constituent parts to helping us understand the publican and this humility that he displayed as the fruit of being made right with God. They go on to say this, they say, emphasizing its foundational nature, it's crucial to recognize that without a robust theology of justification, the soundness of other doctrines become compromised. Now let that sink in. And the preservation of a true church becomes uncertain, stating, quote, without a sound doctrine of justification, other doctrines cannot be sound, nor will it be possible to maintain a true church. Now, that's a bold statement. That if, if the doctrine of justification is either misunderstood or compromised, it jeopardizes the whole system of theology that we hold to. Not only does it jeopardize the whole system of theology, but it undercuts the very foundation that helps a church remain faithful, a true church, if you will. Now, why? Well, beloved, because it strikes at the very heart of the reason we even have the Word of God. The reason we even have the Word of God in print. I mean, if you go back and, and you familiarize yourself with what we've already confessed from the first paragraph of the Westminster Confession, it was what? That is the light of nature is insufficient to lead man to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's not sufficient. As glorious as nature is, it can't give the doctrine of salvation. It doesn't teach justification. It doesn't teach how men and women are to be reconciled to God. And therefore, it pleased God to put it where? Into writing. Now, there are other subordinate reasons for that, but that's the primary one. That we would have a central location for all nations to, to come to and read and to understand that they can be made right with God through his son. And what that requires. So brothers and sisters, it is significant that we understand not just this doctrine of justification, but that we see that it is intricate to the well-being and strength of the church. And therefore, it's okay to spend two or three sermons or more in unfolding it and helping us understand it from Holy Scripture now, there are a couple of things that we began looking at last week, and I'm going to pick up where we were about justification. If you look back at verse 14, where it says, and I tell you, where Jesus says, I tell you that this man went to his house justified, well, Jesus is telling us that this man didn't justify himself, that there was an, something that was acted upon him. It's passive. 
The man did nothing. That is, all of the tears he shed, no matter how many repetitions of the beating of his chest, no matter the distance he was able to to withdraw from the front of the worship service. He could get all the way back in the corner. None of that saved him. None of what he did was meritorious to his salvation, to his being justified before God. Jesus lets us know that it was something that was acted upon him on his behalf. That's what it is when he says that he went justified. He was declared, if you will, justified before God. God had declared him guiltless and reconciled. We're going to open some of this up. So, The very first thing, if you're taking notes, is to understand, beloved, that justification is a legal concept. It's forensic in nature. It does have the environment of a courtroom. That's its context. And that's how we should understand it. Listen to this statement. It says that the, that strictly speaking, talking about the, both the, Greek and the Hebrew word for justification nearly always identifies a forensic term denoting an act of judgment by a judge. That is a setting of uh, a setting of a guilty party free instead of condemnation. Then we looked at two of those passages: Deuteronomy twenty-five and verse one, and Proverbs seventeen. In verse 15, it's the act that God absolves a sinner. This judge absolves the guilty. Look in your Bibles to Psalm 143. There is, there's no discrepancy. There is certainly um, no contradiction from the Old and New Testament at all. They, these ideas comport fully and they flow perfectly from the Old to New Testament. In Psalm 143 and verse 2, notice what the psalmist says. He says, do not enter into judgment with your servant for in your sight... No man living is righteous. This is the idea. This is what David is saying. David is acknowledging, he's recognizing that God does sit in the role of judge. That, that's a legitimate office that God holds, that God reserves for himself, and that we must also understand, beloved, that when we read scripture and that when we go from old to new and flowing in the various concepts, that there are remaining, there are interacting with two distinct covenants, that covenant of works. What does the covenant of works demand? Whole perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness. 
The covenant of grace demands a righteousness that is by faith. Now, those two are not in conflict. They are certainly not the same, but they're not in conflict with one another. That is, all of mankind can be summed up in these two covenants. They are either in the covenant of works where demanding of them is, well, perfection and perfect obedience. And they remain under the law as its rule of righteousness. And then there's the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace are those that, that occupy the covenant of grace are those that have come like the publican who have come to that awareness of their guilt and their need of pardon. And they have humbled themselves before God, recognizing that they are incapable of saving themselves, that they are incapable of keeping this perfect standard of righteousness. And therefore, they cry out to God for mercy. And God, moved by his love and grace, pardons that sinner. And therefore, their righteousness that they obtain, that is through Christ, beloved, is theirs by faith and not by works. Not by works. And if it's not by works, there is nothing that you and have to boast about, right? We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast about because it is a salvation that is by grace and grace alone. And so we have to recognize that this efficient cause of our justification or any justification is God. He's the efficient cause of it. And we're going to open that up, but there are other things, beloved, as we come to look at this concept and, and how it permeates all of Scripture, that there are not just the statement of justification, but they are the synonyms, they are the description of justification, words that are similar, words that are connected with, like Romans 2, verse 13, the righteousness of God, the righteousness before God, to make righteous, to impute righteousness, Blessedness, bless, all of these concepts are related to and have to deal with justification, being made right before God or being accepted before God, being pardoned of sin. How can a man or a woman be blessed and still remain under the burden of their sin? How can a man or a woman be blessed of a holy God and still remain under the burden of their guilt? How does that happen? Well, it doesn't. John chapter 3 tells us at the very last verse says, all of those who remain in unbelief have the abiding curse of God on them. Why? For their sin. For their sin. So brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that God and God alone is the efficient cause of justification. Now you might think, 
We know that. Well, I think it's something that we have to be reminded of because every other religion has an element of works attached to their salvation, which is, well, it comp- that compromised the doctrine of justification, doesn't it? Because then we're asking, then what we're saying is, well, God justifies, but we help God justify us. We come to God's aid and we help in justifying ourselves. Well, I mean, that can't be a tenable position from Scripture. Because again, there can be no room for, well, boasting, correct? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Not by works, lest any man should boast. This was part of the the conflict with between the Protestant protestants, those who protested what? Well, protested the compromise and the adulterating of true theology by the Catholic Church, who had compromised the doctrine of justification, who had compromised the doctrine of Scripture, who had compromised what it is to live a Christian life, and all of the various pollutions and corruptions of the Catholic Church. That's where they got the word Protestant, protestants, they protested such a thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Luther, but there is a great scene, there's a couple of them, but there is a great scene, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the whole movie is when Luther goes to Rome and he is going to open the Pope's eyes to the corruption of the church. I mean, he's going to he is going to, you know, um, he, he, he is going there in order to, to sort of build up his, himself and to help sort of build the Catholic church. And what happens when he gets to Rome? What does he see? Vile corruption and sin. The, the, the profiteering of the church with men's, with guilt, profiting from men's guilt, profiting from, from the corruption of our own heart. He, he saw a corrupt institution and it just destroyed him. It, it, God used it to just tear down these, these idols that he had fashioned in his own heart. Well, this is what we're talking about here. All along, Luther had been trying to work his way to heaven and he was unsuccessful at it and he was guilty, guilty, guilty. And that's why he would literally beat himself up in prayer at night because he was guilty. He didn't understand the grace of God. And when he did come to that understanding of the grace of God, his whole life changed. So, beloved, we have to understand justification from two perspectives. The covenant of works, which in its original giving, men in Adam and Eve were capable of fulfilling. They could justify themselves by works. Why? Because they were created innocent. They were created righteous. They were created knowledgeable. They were created, they were given everything they needed in order 
to comply with God's holy law. But they failed at it. And once it was broken, it was broken forever. There was no way of going back and amending that. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, if you're going to live by the law, you got to keep the whole law and you have to keep it perfectly without one violation. So you have to see justification and righteousness in the sense of the covenant of works. And then you have to recognize it in the covenant of grace in Christ. We see the Pharisee, do we not, still thinking he can live up to that standard of perfection. He's boasting about it, and the publican has realized he's unable to do so. Now, what is it? That is, what is it, beloved? As we understand these two covenants, and we understand that these are the covenants that are set before us, how then are we to see justification and understand it? Well, again, as it's a legal term, there's a twofold aspect to it. Listen to this. Legal justification, that's one aspect, and gospel justification, that's the other aspect. What does legal justification refer to? The covenant of works. What does the gospel justification refer to? The covenant of grace. You're either... You, you either will be justified by works or by grace in the gospel. That's it. Those are the two options. Those are the two paths. The former justification is out of the law and its works, while the latter is out of faith. It's out of faith. The former is inherent and the latter is the imputation of alien righteousness, which we know is Christ's righteousness. After the fall, no one is justified by the covenant of works. But by the latter, everyone is justified who has been granted faith in Christ. Look at, look at Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Now what, I'm going to back up to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And he's talking about God here. For we maintain, verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, what are we talking about here? We're talking about these terms that convey blessing, terms like reconciliation, blessing, salvation. And these are very important terms, aren't they? Because what does a sinner desperately need? Reconciliation. 
Why? Because the sinner is at odds with God. The publican is at odds with God. The Pharisee is at odds with God. But the problem with the Pharisee is he's blind and God hasn't opened his eyes and he doesn't see his own demise. He doesn't see that he's naked before God, that he's putrid and pitiful and compromised and and diseased by his own sin. He doesn't see it. It's like the emperor with no clothes on. He thinks he stands before God just robed in righteousness and God is so glad to have him. The publican is the opposite, isn't he? We think about the term reconciliation. What about the term blessing? What is it to be blessed? Well, it's the idea that we have come into a relationship with God and we are right with our father and he is right with us that he's no longer at odds with us. We're no longer under his curse, but now under his blessing. Now, that's important, beloved, because that is when we put our hands to the works of this world, what are we seeking? Blessing. When we put our minds to activity, when we put our energy into something, when we, whether it's our homes, our families, our marriages, whatever they are, it's the service that we provide each other and one another in church. All of these things, what are we begging for? We want God's blessing. That is, it, it, it produces the outcome. Not only do you have the joy of doing it, but others have the joy of receiving what is done. Blessing. It's not like the idea doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I think the picture here, and this is, I guess, where some of the media is helpful. You know, when you watch these reality shows and you're able to watch the, these families that are just so broken. Godless. You know, it's not that I'm not advocating you waste time doing it, but if you sit down and take 10 minutes and you watch it, it's a picture of the world, isn't it? And it's interesting that they can be just enveloped in sin, and a lot of times they'll even talk about God's blessing. Blind. Dead. Cursed. They can't even see it. That's how deep the curse goes. And it doesn't matter. There's this constant turmoil. There's this constant friction. There's this constant agitation, constant bickering, constant complaining. It's just the picture. It's, it's anything but godly blessedness. To have God's blessing, beloved, is not only to have a place where we can come and worship and have a respite from the world, amen, where we can come and gather together. And we may not all understand the same things alike or we may not all believe everything alike, but we come because we hold to the essentials and we have a a handle. God has saved us. He's put grace in our hearts and we come to fellowship with one another. We come to sup with one another and have interaction with one another. And it's a peaceful thing. It's a good thing. And we look forward to it. And it's a refreshing thing like our families 
That when God begins to save a home and he begins to bless it and he begins to organize it and he he begins to transform it, it becomes a place of great blessing. Read Psalm 127 and 128. I mean, it's this place where there is this just beautiful portrait of rest and refreshment. That's God's blessing. So you can see there, and then salvation, uh, again, salvation is, is it's not that simple. It's just not that simplistic term. Oh, well, I'm not going to hell when I die. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's the saving from the curses of this world. I'm going to, I guess I'm going to be a little crass. It's to save, being saved from our own stupidity. Why? Because God opens our minds. He opens our eyes, our intellect. He begins showing us things. I can tell you, beloved, I have became a much smarter person when I became a Christian. About this world and the things in this world, at least smarter related to human character and nature, right? Understanding the corruption of my own heart, understanding it in other people as well, keeps us safe, does it not? Let me give you a definition. It's similar to the one I gave you last week. Um, Um. justification but remember as God is that primary mover the justifier he is the efficient cause this is the definition that I was working with last week it says he does so out of his own mere grace um, and mercy that he does what he does this he pronounces righteous the person who is unholy and of himself a sinner subject to God's wrath I'm gonna read it again that God pronounces righteous the person who is unholy and of himself a sinner subject to God's wrath. And that's what drove the publican to beat his chest. That's what drove the publican to go up to the temple. He had come to that awareness. The Lord had opened his heart and his mind to, to begin to see the holiness of God And he began to fear the judgment of God. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Why does the world continue to move about the way it does? Because they are blind to the wrath of God. They're blind to it. Most of the people that you will meet who are in their sins will tell you, well, I'll take my chances. You don't say that if you know about the wrath of God. You don't say that. If you're standing in line and there's an execution up ahead and you're next, it's pretty real at that point, isn't it? And that's the concept and understanding that a sinner becomes aware of, that they are standing before God and he is angry with them for their sin. That's why the parts of of justification are important. What are the two parts of justification? 
pardon and imputation. The pardon of guilt and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Why is that important? Well, brothers and sisters, we have to be, we cannot serve God as guilty sinners. We can serve God as saved sinners. We can serve God as cleansed sinners, pardoned sinners. God pardons us. And therefore, our service to him is that of a pardoned sinner. Why is that important? Well, one reason it's important, even in our day and time, is there are so many people that think they can profess the name of God and Jesus and turn right around and never leave their sins, ever. That God is just going to wink at and overlook their sins because all they needed to do was confess him. That's it. But that's part of it. That God pardons us. He, he absolves us from that guilt that we owe, that we bear for our own sin. And then he imputes to us. He, into our account, the righteousness of Christ. Now, this imputation, don't, think too, don't, don't put too much effort into it. Some of you may understand it when you say, look, you're, in, you're imputing to me poor motives or wrong motives. You're imputing to me wrong motives. God, uh, on our account, ascribes to us the righteousness of Jesus so that that righteousness becomes our righteousness. Therefore, not only have we been pardoned for sin, but we have a righteousness that now is acceptable to God when we think about God being the primary efficient cause of justification, brothers and sisters, it's not just a simple fact that we've been pardoned and that we have been uh, imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. It goes back further than that. When did all of this become a reality or when did all of this become into the mind of God? Well, before the foundation of the world. If you're going to call God the efficient cause of justification, what does the word efficient imply? It means that it will produce all that God has set it forth to do. It will, it will, reach, it will reach its goal. What's the goal of justification? Salvation. Salvation. When did that begin, beloved? When did God, as the efficient mover of justification, when did he begin this work of salvation? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. I'm not going to read it. You can make notes of it and go back there and read it. I'm just going to mention a couple of things that are important to this idea of of God being that efficient cause of justification because brothers and sisters, it began before the foundation of the world. That God had predestined, he had elected, without that election, would the publican ever come to faith? 
Without God's election, would the publican ever come to his senses? Without the election of Almighty God, would the publican ever receive a new heart by the Holy Spirit? Would he ever have the discernment to see his sin the way God sees it, that God's glory the way God is? Would he ever be able to see it? No, he would not. So it started way back before the foundation of the world in God's electing grace because he didn't have to do it. But that doesn't stop there. There are what the divines called assisting graces. What are these assisting graces or assisting causes of justification? Well, I've already mentioned several of them to you in the sermons itself, but well, the gospel's an assisting grace. Why is the gospel so important? Because in the gospel is where we come to the clarity and reality that we are under God's condemnation and curse and that we must flee to him through his son Jesus, right? Well, that's why they call the gospel the good news. It's the good news that you no longer have to remain in this covenant of works. You no longer have to, to scratch and claw your way to perfection. You no longer have to climb this ladder that you're never going to get to the top and fall back down to the bottom. You're never going to have to. You can come now to God in his son Jesus and be received and cleansed of your sins all by God's grace. That's the message of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so important. These assisting causes, the preaching of the word. If you remember, I talked about the publican coming into contact in some form or another with what? The gospel. Driving him to go up to the temple and to worship God. That's why Romans chapter 1 calls the gospel the power of God unto salvation. Why? Because it's the great message. It's the message of grace. It's the message of salvation, of reconciliation. It's the message, beloved, that all who have been elected before the foundation of the world are eager to listen to and hear. Not everyone. But you see, you can't, you can't boast You can't boast about it because the only reason you had ears to hear the gospel when you heard it is because God had ordained the very moment your ears would be open to hear the assisting calls of God's justification call you to him. You can't brag about it. You can't say, well, you know what, we're, we're more intellectual and so we're smarter than the rest of these people out here. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a corruption. It's an infection. It's a pollution. It's not an intellectual problem. The gospel is not, doesn't just tickle the intellect. It addresses the person in their very core. Who you are in your heart, in your mind, in your psychology, in your private time, who you are. That's the gospel. Look at Daniel chapter 12. This is a, a verse that I came across in my study and I thought, wow, 
um, how revealing it is. Daniel chapter 12. And look at verse 3 because it's not just the message that God uses as the primary mover as our justifier, but it's even the officer that he uses, the minister, if you will, or the prophet. In this case, the prophet or the priest. Look at verse 3. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What Daniel is speaking of here is that there are men ordained of God in the ministry of proclaiming this righteousness by faith. They are like stars and bright lights. And they lead people to the righteousness of God. How? Well, with their ministry of the word, with the ministry of the preaching. All of this, all of this beloved, what? Ordained of God to bring his elect to salvation and to justification. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, another concept that is sort of foreign to so many in the modern church. But this is again um, what is being talked about here. Truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus referring to? He's talking about the ministry of the office of elders. This office of elder, he's saying, listen, he says, you are like these assisting graces to their justification. You are imploring men to do what? Repent of their sins. And when they repent of their sins, what are you doing? You are acknowledging their repentance as in the place of God. It's not that men do anything magical or mysterious or any way take credit. No, God's the efficient mover of justification. He's the one blessing. He's the one opening eyes. He opens the heart. He opens ears. He opens our minds to these things. Well, where does Christ come in? Well, as we've been saying all along, God is the efficient mover of justification. He is the efficient cause of justification. Well, he is also that in Christ. When did God plan to send his son into the world? Before the foundation of its creation. that he would accept Christ's works on behalf of sinners. That God had determined before the foundation of the world that he would what? He would prepare for sinners a righteousness that would be accepted by God. Now here's another flaw or mistake people make. God's not giving you any of his righteousness. And why is that an important point to make? Because we don't become little gods. We're not little gods. We're children of God. 
God in the very beginning had planned and determined that he would grant to us a righteousness. He would prepare for us a righteousness in his son. And it is that righteousness that God would grant to us as our righteousness and be made whole before him. And that is so instrumental. It's vital to this idea Beloved, that we have a righteousness that is foreign and alien to ourselves. It is Christ. God prepared that righteousness for us and it is granted to us and God accepts it on that gift. That when it's given to us, it's yours. And God accepts it. Now, how does all this play out? God being the efficient cause of justification, Christ being that meritorial cause, it's on the merits of Christ that we are justified by. Well, beloved, if you look back in Luke, and this will be where we spend our last portion of a message addressing this, but notice, notice the fruit. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Meaning that the, the fruit that flows out of that justification is all of these other graces and benefits and blessings. There are, there are multiplied graces that come through justification. When we are made right with God, beloved, you know what flows out of it? Faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, peace with God, love for our neighbor, love for the things of God, membership in his family, adoption, membership into the church. See, there are multiplied blessings that flow out of this doctrine, this 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 act, this declaration of justification for the sinner. So all of these things, beloved, that we put our hands to, that we, that we partake of, all of these things that, that we engage in are nothing more than the continuations of the blessings of our own justification before God because he is the efficient cause of it. That's why we can never brag about it. We can never boast about it. Even all the good works we do flow from where? From that work of God in us. And that's what Paul says in Philippians. For God is at work in you to do his good pleasure. That God is bringing us all of, that, the, that everything that flows out of that, he gets the glory. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. He gets all the hallelujahs. You know, it was, um, we'll end with this. It was a, um, it was John Knox. He was on his deathbed. And he was suffering. He was in the last hours of his life and he would, he would commandeer various family members to come in there and read the scriptures to him. And then they would, they would read the scriptures to him and they would also sing hymns while he was waiting to pass on to glory. And he had fallen asleep during one of these sessions and woke up terrified. 
And they asked him, why was he so terrified? And he said, I had a nightmare. He said, I I dreamed that I was standing before God in heaven. And they asked me, why should I be accepted into heaven? And he said, and I began to pontificate all of my good deeds. And he said, it terrified me because none of my good deeds are worthy of everlasting life. And brothers and sisters, that's where we need to be. All of these good deeds are nothing more than the work of God in us and it started in that beginning original justification, but even that goes back before the foundation of the world. God is the savior of men, nothing else. We talk about the doctrine of justification being that doctrine that the church live or dies, stands or falls. Well, now you see why. Because salvation is of the Lord. And we should put our hands over our mouths the moment we plan to take credit for what God is doing. Right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that this this truth would not simply fall by the wayside with anyone here. And we would contemplate it and we would think about it. We would consider it. And we would consider our own relationship to it. Now, Father, I pray and ask that if there is anyone here this afternoon that has not come to that place of, Lord, that confidence of being in Christ, Lord, would you do that now? Would you call them? Would you open their eyes? Would you cause them, oh, Lord, to repent and flee to Christ in, in, in light of the great wrath, Lord, that belongs to all who do not? Lord, Christ is the strong tower for all who believe. He is the shield and the buckler, Lord. He took upon himself that wrath that every sinner deserves. And so, Father, I pray that you would even this day, Lord, let the fruit of this study be a greater, higher appreciation, Lord, of the mercy and the love of God. How he was that he chose to move and to act and to save when he did not need to or have to, but chose to. Lord, help us wrestle with that and and understand it and let it shape the way we live in this life. Let it shape the way we deal with one another. Let it shape the way we do our labors and works in the church. Let it shape everything that we are. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.